I'm Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in the series, A Litany Against Fear. With the global pandemic throwing off our normal rhythms and routines and the specter of sickness and death lingering in the air, it's natural to wonder how this will all turn out. What will this suffering and struggle do to us? Jesus entered into his own struggle and suffering in the wilderness of Judea. His example has inspired and shaped the response of his followers to suffering and struggle down throughout history, providing for us a paradigm for responding to this global pandemic. Hey, my friends, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. That is Luke chapter 4. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how to respond as followers of Jesus to uh, the new reality we find ourselves in. In the last few weeks of time, our, our life rhythms and expectations have been rocked and for some completely derailed. I'm taking seminary classes right now and just so happened to take a class uh, addressing the theology and practical how-to of doing church online. Uh, The class started back in January before any of this was even uh, remotely a possibility uh, of, of happening. And uh, I took the class out of just the need for credits, out of uh, the fact that I like the professor doing it. Some of my friends are uh, are taking the class as well. No plans of of doing church online for Van City. And about a month ago, I told my whole class that there was no way Van City would be doing church online. And here we are. I'm looking at a camera, addressing all of you guys, unable to see you physically, but I mean, we are grateful for the ability to stay connected, grateful to still be able to function as the church, even if it's uh, far from the ideal. But definitely, this is not something that I have ever had the desire to do. So how do we respond to life? struggle, suffering as followers of Jesus when we have no control over it, when life takes a turn uh, in a direction that we don't want and we're unsure of how things are going to turn out. So uh, let's read in Luke chapter 4 starting in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. So to grasp uh, what's happening, we need a bit of context. So Jesus uh, was just coming from an incredibly powerful moment in his life. So he got baptized in the Jordan River. The Holy Spirit descended uh, upon him and the Father uh, spoke over him saying, you are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. No doubt a profound experience for Jesus. But then Jesus is led into the wilderness. He's, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit, but, but he's, he's led into the wilderness by the Spirit himself. And, and the word for wilderness in the, in the Greek is the word eremos. Uh, think desert, but, but not the cool kind of desert. Uh, Hannah and I went to Palm Springs uh, uh, last summer for a vacation. Um, thank you, Groupon. And it looked something like this. Beautiful pool. It was great. Um, it was my first time at Palm Springs, and I really enjoyed myself, especially since our kids stayed home. Uh, so we, we got to hang out by the pool, ate some good food. We read books. And and I didn't realize it, but I guess people usually go on vacation to Palm Springs in the winter because apparently they don't like 120 degree weather. Although 
it's dry heat, so it, it really is only like 110 degrees. Not, not so bad. Anyway, so the, the wilderness, the Eremos uh, Jesus went to was quite different. Uh, this is a picture of the Judean wilderness, probably pretty close to where Jesus went. So when Jesus is led into the wilderness, think desert, think uninhabited. Sometimes it's referred to as a lonely place. It's a dry and thirsty place. Life is a struggle in the Eremos. That's all true. For Israel, the wilderness held symbolic significance as well. It was a symbolic of struggle, spiritual failure, and rebellion. Israel, a nation of oppressed slaves, was rescued by God, brought out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And this time in the wilderness for Israel should have been incredible. Yahweh made a covenant relationship with them saying, I will be your God and you will be my people, a nation of royal priests from slaves to royalty. Not, not a bad situation, but of course, like any good relationship, there were boundaries and expectations in order to maintain the relationship. And Israel failed almost immediately, and honestly, in a stunningly spectacular way. Um, it's the story of the golden calf in Exodus 32, which is, which is a story for another day. You can read it on your own if you have the time, which I kind of assume you do. God was gracious and forgave their sins after this episode, and he reestablished his covenant relationship with Israel. But as the story of Israel in the wilderness progressed, they kept failing. They failed to trust Yahweh's ability to protect them in the promised land, and so they wandered around in the desert for 40 years. They grumbled and complained against God and the leaders, and ultimately even Moses, the leader of Israel, failed and missed out on entering the promised land. You can take the nation out of the wilderness, but you can't take the wilderness out of the nation. At, a, at the precipice of, of entering the promised land, after 40 plus years of wandering in the desert, Yahweh tells this to Moses. You are going to rest with your ancestors, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with, with them. And that's uh, exactly what happened. Uh, the wilderness represents Israel's struggle and ultimate failure to be faithful to Yahweh. And, and it starts a trajectory for hundreds of years that reverberates all the way to Israel's defeat and exile in Babylon. When the Spirit leads Jesus into the Eremos, he, he's not going on a spiritual retreat to Palm Springs. The, the Spirit is leading Jesus into the place of Israel's failure and unfaithfulness. And, and Jesus is choosing to follow the leading of the Spirit into the wilderness. But don't miss the fact that Jesus enters into the wilderness full of the Spirit and practicing at least two spiritual disciplines, silence and solitude and fasting. It's easy for us to regard the state of Jesus in the wilderness as one of weakness. You know, isolation can be spiritually dangerous for a person and hunger can compromise a person's ability to fight against temptation. I know that when I'm hungry, I'm way more susceptible to being angry and to being impatient and to eat things that I would normally eat or even to eat a greater quantity of something that I normally wouldn't. Um, but Jesus is actually practicing these spiritual disciplines to strengthen himself. 
He's intentionally using silence and solitude and fasting to draw closer to his father, which puts him in a place of strength, not weakness. And it's a good thing too, because he's facing temptation he, from Satan. He's facing spiritual attack and oppression. If you know the story though, and it's a pretty well known one, then you know how this goes. So look down at Luke chapter four, starting in verse three. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now notice that Satan attacks the identity that the father has just spoken over Jesus as his beloved son. Verse four, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. That's Jesus quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3. Uh, verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Quoting uh, Deuteronomy 6.13. The devil led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, quoting scripture, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Uh, so Satan quotes the Bible to try to tempt Jesus into unfaithfulness, but Jesus understands that this is a, a twisted reading of the scriptures. So uh, verse 12, Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test, quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So Satan does his best to tempt Jesus to give up faithfulness to God and to turn away from the path that will lead him to the cross. But Jesus is using the words that God has spoken to Israel while they were failing in the desert from, from the book of Deuteronomy. And, and he succeeds in remaining faithful to God. There's a ton in there, but, but for uh, today's purposes, I, I just want to read one more verse that flows directly from the story, uh, verse 14 of Luke chapter 4. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. So Jesus returns to Galilee, his hometown region, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it's noticeable because uh, to people uh, in that region, uh, there's something different about this Jesus character. People are talking about him. Through the faithfulness of Jesus, the wilderness is transformed from a symbol of failure and unfaithfulness into a symbol of spiritual discipline and struggle and suffering, absolutely, but also ultimately spiritual revival. Welcome to our wilderness. Right now, this is our wilderness. Uh, unlike Jesus, we, we certainly did not choose this for ourselves, but we're here nonetheless. Welcome to the Eremos of 2020. Loneliness, struggle, suffering, self-quarantines, lost jobs, sickness, and death, the unknowns of what the future will look like and how long it'll take to establish a new normal. But if Jesus transformed the wilderness, the Eremos, into a place ultimately of spiritual revival, how the heck do we see that happen here and now? The desert 
uh, as a place of spiritual discipline, suffering, and struggle, and spiritual revival captured the imagination of followers of Jesus about 1,700 years ago. So, in order to look forward, let's, let's look back into the experience of some of our brothers and sisters in the distant past. So, uh, before that point, uh, the first 300 years of uh, Christian history, uh, Christianity was persecuted to varying degrees. Uh, following Jesus was generally uh, culturally uncomfortable and often a, a dangerous thing to do. It took sacrifice and, and usually meant uh, suffering in order to follow Jesus, which, if you know the teachings of Jesus, are pretty consistent with what he told his followers uh, was going to happen. Uh, but instead of this persecution crushing the church, it actually helped to promote a strong spiritu spirituality in the church. Because generally, uh, flaky people don't embrace suffering and struggle. But when Christianity was legalized in the year 313 by the Roman Emperor Constantine, uh, and, and eventually made the religion of the Roman Empire, Soon, Christianity became really easy and comfortable to be a part of. In fact, it became easier to be a Christian than to not be a Christian. This had deeply negative, uh, a deeply negative spiritual impact on the church, as the spiritual vitality that comes from struggle and suffering gave way to ease, comfort, and low-cost apprenticeship to Jesus. The wilderness, um, literally the, the deserts of Egypt and Syria and Palestine, uh, became a place where you could reject the ease and comfort and nominal Christianity of the time. The desert was the place to embrace hardship and suffering and dependency on God to fight the flesh and the devil and, and to practice spiritual disciplines. And this was in order to ultimately grow in uh, one's love for God and one's love for neighbor. In the desert, you cannot hide from yourself. You cannot over-busy yourself. Your personal weaknesses and struggle against sin is ever before you, and you have the opportunity to confront it. Some followers of Jesus went out to the desert alone, forming loose communities with other hermits in the area. Uh, others started organizing uh, communities that were the beginnings of, of the monastic movement in Christianity. So think uh, the beginning of monks and nuns. But if you think about it, it's kind of a literalist uh, interpretation of Jesus's uh, temptation in the desert. So, so literally, you should go out into the desert yourself to practice spiritual disciplines like Jesus and to be uh, tempted by, by the devil and to confront your flesh. But here's the wild thing. It actually worked. These lone hermits, now referred to as the Desert Fathers, and the budding monastic movement stirred spiritual and theological revival in churches around the Roman Empire. Throughout history, and, and even today, their influence is felt in the church, both theologically and practically. Much of what Man City does uh, by practicing spiritual disciplines comes first from the life and teachings of Jesus, but, but often filtered through the experience and, and the wisdom of the Desert Fathers and the monastic movement. Now, to, to bring a little more balance to this period of, of the church, um, because honestly, I can get overly idealistic about this stuff. Uh, I just want to mention some of the excesses in the desert. Like, for instance, one dude lived on top of a pillar for 37 years, uh, achieving a degree of notoriety and influence. Um, 
wow, how times have changed and how influencers have changed. Um, there are others that completely um, isolated themselves for years, starved themselves, and generally did things that were destructive to their physical, mental, and probably, and I would venture to guess, most likely spiritual health as well. Quite simply, a lot of them thought that forcing themselves to suffer physically and mentally would reap spiritual benefit. It was an extreme form of asceticism. So it's not as if everything done by these men and women in the desert is helpful for us. And as this desert movement developed, there became an increasing acknowledgement that you actually don't have to physically be in the desert in order to experience struggle and suffering and to intentionally practice spiritual disciplines. The, the practice of the desert fathers to live mostly isolated lives away from other people slowly faded. And monasteries eventually moved to the edges of, of cities and then at times they became centers of, of towns and villages. One did not need to physically be in the desert to experience the Eremos. The question for us today is this, what will our wilderness experience produce? Will we see spiritual revival from this or unfaithfulness and failure in the face of struggle and suffering? Will this time increase our love for God and for others? Because businesses will open again or, or new ones will be started, you'll be able to hang out with people again, your kids will go back to school again, jobs will come back or, or new jobs will become available. Who will you be when that happens? We will come through this to the other side, but that's not to say we won't have a limp or wounds be it emotional or economic or physical. And when the time comes, those can be addressed with the help of the community around you, with the help of a counselor or the healing words and presence of the Holy Spirit or some combination of all three of those. Wounds can turn into scars, no longer painful, but still there nonetheless. We all have and will have pain from this and acknowledging each other's pain, even if there's a gradation to it, is important for vulnerability and relational intimacy and for us to empathize with each other. This will hit some harder than others. And I remember a couple of years ago talking to my counselor about my job here at the church. He's a psychologist, but he also has been a pastor for a few decades, which is a helpful combination for myself. One of my responsibilities and privileges at the church is to meet with people who are hurting or struggling and to listen to them, to speak truth over them or to encourage them and to pray with them. But I had been struggling a, a bit to do this with empathy, um, stemming from my own shortcomings and, and immaturity. So the, the nature of my responsibility is such where I could be sitting with a person mourning the loss of a pregnancy or wrestling through uh, some dark reality from their childhood, um, you know, something that feels big and heavy. And then in the very next meeting, maybe even a couple minutes later, I could be talking with someone struggling because they don't like their college professor. You know, not quite as potentially life-altering, but, but still, you know, a, a legitimate source of, of pain and struggle. 
And, and this intersects with my own story as well. I, I really had a, a hard and, and dark childhood and, and it's taken a lot of work to process through it and to heal from it. And, and I'm still a work in progress, obviously. So out of a realization of my shortcomings, I asked my counselor, how do I have compassion and empathy for the students struggling with their professor when there are hu these huge issues people are facing and that I've even faced myself? And he just smiled at me and told me, pain is pain. If one person breaks their leg and another person stubs their, po their, their toe, both are feeling pain. And for me, that, that clicked right away. Uh, pain is pain regardless of the gradation. And in our shared pain, this can actually bring us together rather than alienate us as we compare who has more or less pain from all of this. We're in this wilderness, this eremos, together. And for the follower of Jesus, our paradigm should be to view the eremos uh, that we go through as a double-edged sword. We don't pretend like this is such an amazing thing and that we are so stoked to be uh, going through this and to like flaunting this attitude as some sort of sign of how spiritual we are. That has more in common to do with the extreme ascetics that treated suffering as the ultimate end of their desert experience. No. Instead, we need to, to acknowledge the pain of all of this, the, the suffering and struggle of our relationships, our jobs, our routines, and the like. But we also see suffering as an unfortunate but real opportunity for spiritual renewal and revival. It's part of the way Jesus defeats the evil and brokenness of the world by bringing good out of it. So one of the best things we can do is, is look at those who've gone before us, brothers and sisters who have faithfully followed Jesus in the Eremos and, and have come out the other side. That's why I chose to talk about the Desert Fathers and the monastic movement. And, and it's helpful to acknowledge differences in situations we're facing. Uh, we're in this together, yes, but the details of the pain or struggle can differ. So this, this way we can kind of more directly address our own situa situation in th thoughtful and helpful ways. Uh, for those of you who are single, there's a good chance you're facing the challenge of feeling isolated and a, and a degree of loneliness as you stay at home. Uh, maybe you feel like you have too much free time on your hands now. Uh, your normal rhythms of relationship have been interrupted and that's a really painful experience. My encouragement to you is to learn from the balance of the Desert Fathers, harnessing the pain of isolation into the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude is one of the ways Jesus can speak to you and shape you during this time. You do that by being intentional with the extra time you have. Set aside five or 10 minutes periodically throughout the day to pause and sit in God's presence. You can practice listening prayer during these times, meditate on scripture, and this harnesses your solitude and it allows Jesus to speak into it and to speak over you. Here's the thing, uh, we often have the habit of approaching Jesus to help us to feel better. Uh, whatever that means in, in a certain situation, whether it's uh, not to feel anxious anymore or not mad anymore or not hurting anymore. And that's not bad. I think Jesus does want to bring comfort and relief. 
But there are also so many times in life when we have to go through the pain, when we have to experience it, when we have to acknowledge its effects on us, and, and we need to see what it brings up in our hearts and in our minds. We, we have to witness what temptations come to the forefront of our minds in an attempt to ease our pain. There is an aspect of this that is revealing a true part of who you are. Who are you when things are hard? We miss this process and growth when we slowly look, or when we solely look for comfort and cessation of our pain. This relevatory process is done with Jesus in the presence of his grace, patience, forgiveness, and truth. You know, listening prayer and imaginative prayer are really helpful tools in the process to hear God uh, speak and, and to experience his truth. But like the des Desert Fathers, this takes intentionality. Th this takes planning. When are you going to pause throughout the day to do this? All of this is balanced by prioritizing new ways to stay relationally connected with people in your life. You're, you're not to be like the dude living on top of the pillar for 37 years. Connect with people in your community, your friends, your family. Uh, have fun, for sure, and also have good, deep, deep conversations about what your experience has been like. There's something helpful, even powerful, in forming your thoughts into words and speaking out loud what you've been experiencing and what Jesus has been doing and speaking to you. Remember, you did not choose this wilderness, this Eremos. But uh, you have to ask the question, will this painful time lead to a deeper sense of God's presence and a growth in love for God and neighbor. For those of you who are parents, you could very well be facing a different sort of challenge. Uh, you could be feeling a lack of solitude. You know, you've been in your house with your spouse and with your kids with limited means to have time to yourself and you are going stir crazy. I'm feeling this a little bit myself. This is a different type of pain. It's, it's the pain of not having your own space or time. Uh, but for those who feel like their relational time has been interrupted by an increase of demands and an increase of physical closeness with your family, uh, this presents an opportunity for growth by looking at the monastic movement. Now, this might seem odd because our houses are certainly not monasteries and, and our family is not a group of celibate monks or nuns. But it might be helpful to understand what a monastery, in essence, is. Catholic theologian uh, Ronald Rollheiser, in his book, Domestic Monastery, says this of what a monastery is. A monastery is not so much a place set apart for monks and nuns as it is a place set apart, period. It is also a place to learn the value of powerlessness and a place to learn that time is not ours, but God's. If you're unfamiliar with monasteries, they, have, they all have a bell. Um, the bell was the call to go from one task to the next, whether it was a time for prayer or eating or work or study or sleep. But it did not just serve a practical purpose. The ringing of the bell itself is a call to discipline. Uh, Rollheiser says this about the point of the bell. 
The idea was that when the bell called, it called you to the next task and you were to respond immediately. Not because you want to, but because it's time for that task and time isn't your time, it's God's time. The monastic bell was intended as a discipline to stretch the heart by always taking you beyond your own agenda to God's agenda. As you raise your kids through this pandemic, their needs and wants and desire for attention is the monastery bell. A parent hears the monastery bell many times throughout the day, calling them to a discipline of self-sacrifice and service. This again comes with balance. Take advantage of nap times and, and times when the kids are asleep after they go to bed at night. You know, carve out time when the kids are sleeping to have time in solitude or both, you know, for spiritual purposes and also just for fun as well. It, it, it's not spiritual to have no boundaries and never to have time for yourself. Are we going to come out of this feeling as if our family, our kids are a burden? Or will we come through this realizing that the true burden is that we may regard our family as the burden? That we would do well to learn the discipline of answering the bell with patience, love, and self-sacrifice for our families, but also eventually to our communities and to our neighbors and to our city as well. Now, I saved those of you that are um, engaged uh, or even married, but yet to have kids last for a reason. So uh, you could perhaps feel like the encouragement to the single people or, or the parents resonates with your particular situation. That's great. Um, but specifically for you guys, I want to encourage you towards uh, patience. This definitely you know, applies to everyone single, parents, uh, but uh, for you guys specifically, there's a, there's a good chance that there's a, a lot of you who feel your lives have been completely put on hold. Your career has been put on hold or is about to be, or, or you're in the medical field and it's just taking up a bunch of extra time. Maybe you were saving for a house or looking to start having kids. Uh, maybe you were working towards establishing yourself in some way, and now that's all up in the air. And it's painful and frustrating, uh, even unfair. But my encouragement to you is to have patience because you expect Jesus to meet you with his goodness and grace. It's, it's not patience and expectation that everything will turn out amazing. We don't know the future, but we do know the faithfulness of Jesus. In his book, Out of Solitude, uh, theologian Henry Nouwen writes this of patience. Patience comes from the word patir, which means to suffer. Jesus calls these pains birth pains. And so what seems a hindrance becomes a way. What seems an obstacle becomes a door. What seems a misfit becomes a cornerstone. Jesus changes our history from a random series of sad events and accidents into a constant opportunity for a change of heart. To wait patiently, therefore, means to allow our weeping and wailing to become the purifying preparation by which we are made ready to receive the joy which is promised to us. Jesus promises to be with us, to empower us with God's Spirit. We are ushered into the joy of being in God's kingdom and a part of God's family. You, do, you, you did not choose the timing of this eremos, but it's here nonetheless. 
and, and this presents an opportunity for God to shape your heart. So for all of us, uh, when we open the doors to our houses, when we are able to shake hands and, and hug other people, when hurts and pains and suffering that was experienced but, but was hidden in isolation of quarantine, uh, when those come to light, what will our responses be? Will we be more empowered by God's Spirit to address our own pain and needs while also recognizing and helping with the pain and needs of those around us, our community, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family? May this time be for us a moment leading to spiritual revival and renewal. I want to end by reading a scripture over us. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Amen. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us or find more teachings and available resources from Van City at www.vancity.church. You can also support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.